Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Trial Brief. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Bandy Lee with us. Dr. Lee is a forensic psychiatrist at Yale University, an assistant clinical professor at Yale School of Medicine, and a specialist in violence prevention programs in prisons and in our community. Dr. Lee has authored a leading textbook on violence, and those of us in the legal community here in New York, uh, New York City, uh, are very aware of uh, Dr. Lee's uh, work being very instrumental in initiating reforms at New York's Rikers Island jail complex. And Dr. Lee has been consulted by other states on prison reform. But some of you may know her as an editor of the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump which is a collection of essays by 37 mental health professionals, including some of the most renowned psychiatrists and psychologists in the country. And some of those essays pointed out that Donald Trump suffers from mental health issues that amount to a state of emergency and considered a danger with potentially serious consequences for the safety of the American people. And Dr. Lee has been vocal and criticized the American Psychiatric Association for changing or modifying an ethical guideline known as the Goldwater Rule uh, once Donald Trump took office. So it's really my privilege and my honor to have Dr. Lee with us today on the trial brief. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been quite a four-year stretch for you, hasn't it? Yes. Unexpected, but it turned out that way. Prior to 2015, 2016, had you been involved in politics at all? Not at all. I was strictly an academic and a clinician, and whereas I often consulted with policymakers or governments, mainly around my violence prevention work, I had never been interested in politics and, in fact, had to ponder quite a bit whether or not I should speak up in this arena, but uh, the medical situation simply the medical need spoke to my having to in order to keep with my professional standards and norms because we have to adhere to medical neutrality, as you may know. And that means that we do not let political considerations influence our medical judgment or action. And so that's where I ended up. I still don't consider it politics, but I ended up in the arena, yes. Now, as a trial attorney, I'm I'm very, very familiar uh, with the role of forensic witnesses and the role that they play in court. And, uh, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit about the field and what that entails. Yes, a forensic psychiatrist is a psychiatrist who works at the interface of psychiatry and the law. And so I've been doing this for over 20 years. My particular area of specialization has been in violence prevention. In fact, in addition to doing the usual testimonies, um, competence to stand trial or criminal responsibility, and I also have done institutional violence because of my work in prisons, I've also been treating violent offenders and also working at the population level using public health and policy approaches. And so... I've been involved at a wide range, but it's usually interdisciplinary work where I do consultations with lawyers, policymakers, governments, etc. So, uh, yes, it's very much like the trial situation. Have you ever 
had the occasion to testify in court? Yes, multiple times, um, even just last month, uh, a couple times. Yeah, and we use trial attorneys, we use qualified experts in court basically to educate jurors so they can make the, you know, the fair and, and just decision. And, and you've been deemed an expert in court uh, on forensic psychiatry. Yes, that's what I do. And I think you, t- you also teach at, at Yale Law School. Yes, I have been teaching at Yale Law School for 15 years. It ended a couple years ago when one of my co-instructors took an early retirement, but I'm planning a course of my own where I will be inviting law professors to co-teach with me. Until now, I've been co-teaching in the legal courses, such as Immigration Legal Services, Criminal Justice Clinic, Veterans Clinic, and Prison Clinic. Let's get right to the Goldwater Rule. If you could put it in, into simple terms for, for our listeners and, and, and give us an idea of, of how it began and, and how it uh, was modified and what effect that had. Yes, the Goldwater Rule, which has become a household phrase for many people, uh, is a very odd rule for that to happen because it was considered so obscure and, in fact, possibly even invalid since 1980 that many psychiatrists didn't even know about it. But as the name suggests, it came from a political situation where Barry Goldwater was running for president. And a tabloid magazine did a survey of psychiatrists Uh, about Goldwater and a lot of people made some irresponsible diagnoses actually just 10% of those who were surveyed but uh, they were overplayed and sensationalized and uh, after Goldwater lost by a landslide he sued the magazine but it's very unusual that a psychiatric association would adopt an ethical guideline based on a political compromise like that, uh, not based on ethical considerations or scientific or practical, uh, even the clinician. So it was found to be politically abused, and I believe it has been under this administration. What happened in March 2017 was that the American Psychiatric Association, uh, pulling out this very obscure guideline that arguably does no longer applies, and expanded the rule to an absolute gag rule. Originally, it said you cannot diagnose a public figure without examination and authorization. So that's reasonable. We don't diagnose strictly based on interview anymore. That's what's changed since 1980. We use more um, external observation and collateral information. And in fact, for some diagnoses, interviews can even be harmful. So, uh, so it's really a very obscure guideline, but since the Trump administration, they expanded it to include any commentary of any kind on a public figure, no matter the dangers they pose. And that actually goes against our core tenets of medical ethics because we're actually supposed to have a responsibility to society that's almost tantamount to our responsibility to patients. And so something was not uh, quite right for me at the start. Now, a couple of investigative articles, journalist articles have come out showing that the APA had done this in order to secure its federal funding. And in fact, under this administration, which has so uh, reduced 
funding for science and education, so much so that our response to the COVID pandemic is uh, worse than many third world countries, actually increased funding for the APA. So that's that's very suspicious, but uh, tragic in my view, because I gauged that uh, from a pu- public health perspective, that silencing experts would result in the spread of mental pathology and an inability to apply correct interventions and therefore increasing vast suffering and societal damage. And in fact, I believe that is what has happened because everything that has gone wrong with this administration could be traced back to the president's mental impairments and everything that could have been avoided. It needed to be spoken about and it needed to come to a level of some kind of intervention when the medical facts of it were so clear. Yeah. You know, going back to what you mentioned with respect to the Goldwater rule, 2020 is a lot different than 1964, right? And and in 1964, I could see the the prevailing view that it would would be improper or a violation of the standard of care, I guess, to make a diagnosis or to form those opinions, you know, without personally seeing the the patient. But again, the world has changed, right? We today we have access, especially especially with this president, we have access to thousands of videos, audios, tweets, interviews, speeches. And in fact, you, you probably have a much better, a much better opportunity to view and make opinions in that particular case. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, lots of candid videos, uh, progression over time, and plentiful, uh, abundant collateral information, much of it under sworn testimony, that's actually the information that is helpful, especially for dangerous personalities for whom interviews are the least uh, helpful. And also, as I said, we no longer diagnose based on introspective interviews. That was indeed in the 1960s and ended uh, with uh, sort of started to change already in the 70s and ended in 1980 when we started basing diagnoses mostly on external observation. But again, uh, the APA uh, also confused the public in terms of our role because we see patients, but we also have a public health duty. A public figure isn't a patient but is of major concern when it comes to public health and safety. And for public health, we do not need to diagnose the person. That's only when you're treating them as a patient. But the issues of interest are dangerousness and fitness. So as a trial attorney, you've probably encountered those issues a lot, that mental health professionals don't just diagnose mental illness. They also evaluate dangerousness and capacity. We had plentiful information from the very start on those issues. Yeah, and that's another great point. You know, you mentioned mental illness. Mental illness does not equate to mental capacity or dangerousness. That's right. In fact, most mental illnesses are not any more dangerous than those without mental illness. And also a Duke University study showed that uh, almost half of U.S. presidents over 200 years probably suffered from some kind of mental disorder. So obviously mental illness 
can even perhaps have benefits because the general population suffers from it uh, probably at the rate of 20%. But for presidents, it, it, the rate is much higher. So mental illness is not the issue, but we have direct assessments of mental capacity, capacity to to do the job in this situation, and dangerousness, which in itself makes someone unfit. So uh, dangerousness is not based on diagnosis, it's based on the situation, and if you have enough information that rises to a certain threshold where the risk is high, then you do have enough information to intervene. You know, as timing would have it, just today, uh, in the New York Daily News was an article uh, written by uh, Alan Blotchke and Seth uh, Norholm entitled, After Trump, End of the Goldwater Rule Once and for All. And what, what I found interesting about, about the article was it points out that if Trump or any president had a heart disorder, cardiologists wouldn't be prohibited from talking about his health on television or social media. If he had severe diabetes, if he, if he had other uh, epilepsy, a neurological issue, medical experts wouldn't be blocked from voicing their expert opinions. And, and it just seems so odd that mental health experts are. And, and I think uh, they point out, and I, I've, I've thought about this, and, and they, they, they really give the two reasons that, and again, I'd love to know what you think about it, but they point out that psychiatric problems or, or some, some psychiatric problems are seen by the general public as either unscientific, unknowable, um, something we can't measure or or define or accurately diagnose. And th- the second thing is that there's this belief that mental health experts, again, c- according to the article, shoot from the hip or use just professional opinions, and that it's really just a judgment thing. C- can you speak to that? Yes. And of course, those two are misconceptions. They're, they have no basis in truth. Psychiatric diagnoses and assessments are considered just as rigorous as any other medical assessments. In fact, the diagnoses are are, uh, one of the most reliable in medicine. And the fact that the perception that it's subjective or based, uh, not scientifically based, or that it doesn't even exist, that's really a misconception. And I believe that the American Psychiatric Association did the public disservice by making psychiatry the only field, not just in medicine, but the only field of uh, any domain where the public is not allowed to hear from experts. And to stigmatize an entire field, uh, especially a field where uh, one of the problems of uh, a characteristic of the problem of the mind is that it affects the mind and the mind's ability to assess that something is wrong. So, uh, so prevention is actually particularly important in psychiatry because once you are too far gone, you won't seek treatment for yourself. That becomes a symptom of the illness. And so early education and information was critical, as well as pretending that experts don't know anything more than the general public or that uh, mental issues do not exist. These are some of the reasons why those with mental illness do not seek care. And in fact, we have a very serious problem in psychiatry where those who only need uh, care 
uh, or don't need as much care are the ones seeking the most treatment and those who most need care do not seek treatment. So a lot of people suffer in silence and to silence professionals from speaking about this very issue and to pretend that it does not exist uh, really did harm, I believe, to those who are suffering from mental illness, as well as, uh, I mean, the public was far more enlightened than the APA when we were initially speaking up. All the major news networks were inviting us. I was interviewing 15 hours a day, every single day. This was just a couple months after my book was out, an unexpected instant uh, New York Times bestseller, and it was an unprecedented bestseller of its kind, being multi-authored and of specialized knowledge. So that was actually speaking to uh, the public's enlightenment and hunger for uh, rigorous information, and uh, it was the APA stepping in very aggressively and unprofessionally, in my view, in ways that I never expected. But they did so, uh, that was in January 2018, uh, calling us armchair psychiatrists, that we were doing this for self-aggrandizing reasons and using psychiatry as a political tool. And one past APA president, even after he himself diagnosed the president, called us Nazi and Soviet psychiatrists, kind of things that I never expected would happen from a professional association. But within two weeks, we were shut down from all the major media and it that way since. And I think really the, uh, the loss has been on the part of the public when information was critical for the public to be able to protect itself. It became unavailable. And we continued to receive messages on our website, you know, where are the psychiatrists? Where are the psychologists? So the public was getting it. But the APA uh, blocked it because it as I said, uh, it w- wanted um, special favors from the government. And the media, I think, were misled in the beginning because they took the Goldwater rule to be universal, when in fact it only covers 6% of practicing mental health professionals. That's often uh, a shocking fact to most people. No other mental health association has that rule. It's not admissible to any licensing board because it conflicts with the First Amendment. And so it's really, uh, they probably couldn't discipline their own members, even if they wished to, because of that reason. It was supposed to be a guideline, not even a rule. But people took it to be the law. The, The media establishment probably was afraid that they might be breaching some law or some professional boundaries when that that couldn't be further from the truth. Now, how did the book come about? I, I know that you had, um, my understanding was that you had organized a, a conference at Yale on the professional ethics surrounding the mental health of Donald Trump. Uh, how did it all come about? Yeah, so two months after inauguration, when the American Psychiatric Association changed the Goldwater Rule in the opposite direction of science and practice by strengthening it and covering any comment on the president. I realized at that moment that we were in trouble. I predicted at that time that we were going in the direction of authoritarianism. And so the next month, I held the conference about the ethical argument. First, considering the Goldwater Rule, I had a member of the Ethics Committee speak at that conference. And then I invited uh, some of the most renowned 
and highly respected members of my field, uh, Drs. Robert J. Lipton, Judith Herman, and James Gilligan, uh, colleagues I'd known for decades. So we, we pondered the rule and, and weighed, weighed our obligations and decided that we had a duty to warn and a duty to protect the way we do in all situations of danger. Uh, we even breached the sacrosanct patient confidentiality when it comes to danger because safety is of paramount importance. And so we decided then that we had a duty to speak and to inform the public. That's when we decided to put the book together and uh, many more people uh, came forward, but, but we uh, had space only for 27 of the best essays, and that's how the book came about. I think, I mean, I, I think that was really, not only was it groundbreaking in a way, but I think the most significant document that I've read I think over these last four years and the one that really hit me the hardest and made me really, it, it, I had mixed emotions. I, I, I was disturbed by it and I was angry by it and, and I'll explain in a minute, but it was when the authors of that book released basically a report on the Mueller report. I, I really thought it was a, an amazing short document that highlighted basically the dangerousness and incapacity of the president to serve in that office. And it was a scream. It was like sirens going off. And I, I tell you, I had mixed reactions because it was so disturbing to read that these experts, such as yourself, were sounding this alarm and it wasn't being taken seriously. It, or, or it was, look, it was taken very seriously, but it wasn't taken as seriously as it, as it should have been. And it didn't receive the response to the alarm bells that it should have. Yes. As a trial lawyer, you would understand the magnitude of this kind of a capacity evaluation and what it means when a president is failing every criterion. So when the Mueller report became available, it may not have been enough to indict the president, but it was certainly the the exact kind of information we would wish to have for capacity evaluation, basically the capacity to make rational decisions, which is uh, the core responsibility of being president. It was abundant information from of firsthand interactions with the president by coworkers and close associates and their reports under sworn testimony. Uh, I mean, it's the best kind of information we could ever ask for. So I gathered a panel of uh, top experts from around the country who uh, were independent, free of conflicts of interest, and also peer-reviewed. So we produced a document that was of the highest caliber we could think of or uh, be capable of ourselves. And it showed it was alarming to us as well to, to perform in a standardized way an evaluation of the president's ability to make basically sound decisions based on reality and rationality. And he, he failed every part of it. Yes, we tried to gain attention. It was certainly uh, at the caliber that we performed it, certainly admissible as evidence in any court. But uh, like most of what we try to do, uh, because we had no access to the media, no access to getting the public's attention or becoming part of a national discussion. 
it got buried. Uh, that is why I hold the APA responsible, in fact, for all the damage that this presidency has done, because all of this was predictable and therefore preventable, and it had to be prevented in the early stages, before the mental pathology spread, before a malignant normality, as we call it, set in, so that people's thought processes are altered, that they could no longer be rational and no longer be convinced that this was a pathological presidency. And this uh, report was done before the pandemic, a year before the pandemic or so. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you envisioned potential catastrophe that would would arise as a result of the, the president and and his and his pathology. But did you ever imagine a pandemic? We didn't imagine a pandemic, but we stated from the earliest days that were there to be a crisis, the president would make it far deadlier and more devastating than necessary. So the moment we found out about the pandemic, of course, we had this capacity evaluation. So we already had the data at hand to say how he was going to handle the pandemic. So the moment we found out about it, I put out op-ed statements that the final death toll of the pandemic would not depend on the characteristics of the microbe, but on the president's mental state. And that indeed has turned out to be the case, that many epidemiologists have shown that the vast majority of the deaths were unnecessary. Right. These four years have seemed like it's almost been an assault on our mental health, you know, on on this country's mental health. Have you seen empirically the the effects of that assault on us? And and when I say assault, I mean the, really, it's the uh, rejection of expertise, the rejection of reality. And, And this rejection of reality has really taken its toll. Yes. There are empirical studies that had been done uh, by the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, that did surveys of the population from the very early days of the presidency. I mean, we saw it firsthand uh, with patients, but there's probably no therapist in the country who has not seen an upsurge in patients with increased symptoms, uh, those who previously didn't have symptoms having symptoms, and those who were traumatized in the past having re-traumatization experiences, and the stress levels were the highest in memory, according to um, the American Psychological Association study, and we were also seeing record levels of anxiety and depression, according to the American Psychiatric Association. And that is without counting what you have just mentioned, the detachment from reality. I often speak about phenomenon of contagion that comes from having a severely mentally impaired person in an influential position, having a large amount of exposure to the public. This is almost a setup for the spread of symptoms. We don't usually think of mental symptoms as being contagious, but it's often described that way, uh, perhaps even more transmissible because you don't need physical ex- contact for that. You only need emotional bonds. And so what happens is that with prolonged exposure, the primary individual 
comes to spread symptoms in a way where the secondary individuals or previously healthy or predisposed individuals would come to have symptoms almost as if they have the primary illness themselves. I have seen this a great deal working in prison settings. Gangs um, gangs are especially susceptible, but also in state hospital settings where you might have a patient with schizophrenia and they go for a long period of time without treatment. It's not the healthy members in the family who make the sick individual better, but rather the sick individual uh, who transmits the symptoms so that the healthy individuals come to look as if they have schizophrenia themselves. And the treatment for this is to remove the primary individual and you usually hospitalize them. And just as dramatically, the previously healthy individuals return to their baseline. So this is what I believe we can expect from the population at large. That part is good news, but that's not all of it. That's uh, mostly the emotional part uh, because mental pathology spreads through Uh, the emotional pressures, but there's also cognitive um, indoctrination through propaganda channels and disinformation and social media filters. Also, I cite in a new book that I've written, Profile of a Nation, that we need to think of it in three steps. First, removing exposure to the primary individual with severe symptoms. Secondly, to get rid of the propaganda and cultic programming. And thirdly, to improve the socioeconomic conditions that gave rise to the psychological vulnerability in the first place. We do not realize this, but uh, social conditions can also result in psychological injury so that uh, individuals are more vulnerable to manipulation, seduction, and indoctrination, uh, such as through Donald Trump and his enterprise. So I had been worried about the state of our collective mental health for quite some time. And so we were vulnerable even before Donald Trump came into the presidency. Mm, very interesting. I, I I wonder about the next 30 days or so. I mean, we've seen, again, I'm not, I'm not a mental health professional, but it appears to be a deterioration of whatever conditions he has where yes. he is now the things that have been reported are, are off the rails and they're, they're dangerous. And, you know, I don't know what's in store for the, for the next 30 days. And I, I, I don't want to speculate, but there's a quote attributed to you. I believe you said that mental health experts should be on every program every day for the level of emergency he represents. Not one person is grasping the level of seriousness because no one is trained to deal with this level of seriousness. It is a national tragedy. Now, what do we do going forward? What, what do we do after Donald Trump? Well, um, yes, these 30 days or even less now uh, worry me a great deal. And we were anticipating this. As I said earlier, uh, mental health is not a nebulous field. It's not a subjective one where we can substitute our personal opinions for our professional ones, but it's a systematic, clinically-based, measurable uh, field where we can, uh, the past four years is proof that we predicted 
with great precision as to the magnitude and timing of the crises we would experience or the level of worsening. And we also predicted that he would become uncontainable because without intervention, he cannot limit himself, that he has greatly worsened and um, having uh, levels of uh, delusional level sense of impunity and grandiosity and entitlement that uh, this election loss was truly something he could not tolerate. And so we're, we're seeing the effects and there's truly no limit uh, internally within him as to what he would do. And he's still the most powerful man in the universe with uh, uh, the American military and um, uh, the nuclear arsenal that our country has. And so it still is very worrisome. And there was an article that recently came out about uh, Pentagon members being worried as to what they might be required to do, what the president might order them to do. And uh, uh, resisting illegal orders may be clear-cut in theory, but uh, in practice, we see that many boundaries have been breached with this presidency and many standards have been broken. And uh, going back to the APA, how it could supersede all the core tenets of medical ethics to advance protection of a political figure would have been unfathomable for me before this presidency, but that was only one of the multiple breaches that have happened. And so, uh, so yes, the next 30 days are still on my mind and I, uh, it's difficult to look forward, but my association is, well, we formed an organization because after my conference at Yale School of Medicine, we were contacted by thousands of mental health professionals, many from around the world, and we formed the World Mental Health Coalition. We're planning on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We don't expect the government to support it, so we will initiate it and invite others to come and speak about what has happened, why a mental health issue was not handled as a mental health issue. Because trying to solve a psychological problem, a mental health problem in political terms is kind of like bringing um, astrology to uh, a pandemic. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's just uh, why go about it in a way that was bound to fail? And uh, we even petitioned the speaker at one point during the impeachment hearings. More than 800 mental health professionals signed on to it saying that impeachment itself would fail unless psychological factors were considered and that dangers awaited us. And, of course, almost with precise timing, we uh, predicted the pulling out of troops from northern Syria. Uh, We predicted that within days, and uh, we predicted something like the assassination of uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani of Iran about a month before it happened. Uh, So these things are not random. Behavior is not random. And psychological patterns run deep. So it's really an area that needs to be understood. And 
we don't have the most basic understandings of it. So we do need uh, education of the public. We do need safeguards in place, a simple fitness for duty exam before presidents and vice presidents take office would actually eliminate uh, most of the damages and catastrophes that happen because of government. And if all governments adopted this, it could eliminate 99% of the world's atrocities. Those kinds of considerations. How could we approach this in an enlightened way and understanding that mental health expertise is important, that mental health does play a role in all human affairs. And you know, as a trial lawyer, mental capacity is assumed, but it is a prerequisite. Uh, It is assumed until we see signs of mental incapacity. And after that, the person does need to undergo evaluation. So not having those safeguards that every military officer must pass, and uh, every police officer must uh, pass before they assume their positions. A president has access to the one of the world's greatest arsenals that would be able to destroy human civilization many times over, and yet he is not required to undergo the same kind of testing that those who handle nuclear weapons do. That makes no sense and and that I think everybody can understand so you know Dr. Lee I I can't thank you enough for being on and and taking the time to you know educate and and thank you for all the work you've done and for all the work you're continuing to do I think you're a just such an important voice in these times and if we paid more attention and were more serious about this. I, I think a lot of a, a lot of suffering could have been avoided, and I'd love for you to come back on and, and we could reassess this uh, at another time. But thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Hopefully, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for your good work as well. I look forward to being back. Thanks. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.